Good evening, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to my Gresham College lecture on nudging society to better decisions. This is the sixth and final lecture in my series on the psychology of finance, how psychological biases affect financial decisions. Now, today's lecture will change tack quite a bit. So in the prior five lectures, I looked at how psychological biases can lead us to making mistakes. So we, as investors and consumers, might make incorrect decisions, and even chief executives of companies may also make wrong actions. But today, we're going to look at the bright side of behavioral biases, how government policy can actually harness those behavioral biases to lead to decisions that are good not just for us, but also for wider society. And I think, to start with, let me give an example of a very important decision for wider society, which is organ donation. So the big question we have is, well, how do we encourage people to be willing to donate their organs after they are deceased? Now, what is really interesting is that there are big differences in organ donation across different countries. And you might think, well, that's not surprising. Won't it depend on, say, how altruistic a society is? Maybe we would think that donation is going to be higher in more socially-minded, altruistic countries. But in fact, when you look at donation rates between seemingly similar countries in terms of culture, you find quite a lot of differences. So Denmark and Sweden seem culturally relatively similar, but Denmark has a very low rate, Sweden has a very high rate, and we also find these differences between Germany and Austria and Netherlands and Belgium. And surprisingly, these differences can be massive. So if we look at here, we can see Germany at the time this bar shop was constructed had a 12% donation rate, whereas Austria, 99.98%. So massive differences. It's like night and day between two seemingly similar countries. So what might explain this? Well, what explains it is the um, donation system. So there's many countries in which you have an opt-in system where if you don't make an election, the default is that you are not a donor. You do not give consent for your organs to be donated after you have passed away. In the UK, it used to be you had to make an active choice. For example, when you go and apply for a driving license, then you would tick particular boxes if you would like to become an organ donor. And so what they found was that if you take the countries on the left-hand side with low rates, those are the ones with opt-in systems. You need to make an actually active decision to opt in. And the ones on the right are opt-out, where by default you are an organ donor, and only if you explicitly say you would choose not to, then is this not going to be the case. And so this is really interesting, and this in fact is very powerful. It actually changed government policy within the UK from spring of 2020. They've now changed it, so it is now an opt-out system, and that's a way of encouraging more donation just by changing the default. So what is the bias? Well, I said today's lecture is going to be about how we're going to use people's biases towards leading to better decisions. The bias here is called status quo bias, which is that people tend to stick with the status quo. The default decision has a lot of power on what we actually end up doing. So just by changing the default from being opt-in to opt-out has a huge effect on behavior. And this is really important because all we're doing is we're changing the default. So some of you, when you saw the title of this lecture, Nudging Society Towards Better Decisions, that might have jarred with some of you, because you might think, well, is the government here interfering with people's free will? Are they trying to control the population of a country and get them to do certain things? And the answer is no. Right? You still have the same freedom. Right? If you would like not to be an organ donor, you can opt out, and that could be as easy as sending in a form. So we're not changing. We're not interfering with people's freedom as citizens. All we're doing is changing the default. Now, why might it be that there's such strong status quo bias? Why might the default decision have such a strong effect on behavior? Now, one interpretation is a rational interpretation, is that maybe 
the default decision is an informed suggestion. And if we trust institutions, we might go with the default because that's something that we believe is good for us. So it might be the case that, let's say, we don't know where to invest our money, and if there's a default investment option, maybe we'll just go with the default because that's the one which is going to be best for us, at least according to the experts. But what's interesting here is this idea of the informed suggestion that doesn't really apply for organ donation. Well, from a purely selfish standpoint, right, it doesn't matter to us because whether we donate or not, because this doesn't affect us after we've deceased, so it doesn't matter what, what the decision is. And then if you're thinking from a purely altruistic perspective, it is clear that organ donation is what's good for society. So we don't need any advice telling us what the optimal decision is, it is clear if we are an altruistic person that we should be donating. So this idea of using this as an informed suggestion in the face of uncertainty, that might apply towards investment options, but it doesn't apply to organ donation. So what else might be behind it? Well, one other explanation is simply inertia. It is just we like, we like to stick with the status quo, because it's too much effort to change our decision. Now, notice, again, if something is too much effort, that's not irrational. It could be simply rational. It is not irrational not to choose to work seven days a week, even though doing so might maximise our income, because we do care about certain things other than income we do care about effort. But what's so surprising about the example that I've just given is the effort it takes you to tick a box to opt in for donating if the default is to opt out is really, really small. We are already applying for a driver's license, but just the effort of ticking that little box for some reason has a lot of effect in our final decision. The final reason why status quo bias might matter is this idea of conformity bias or anchoring. It's the idea that as social beings, we care about what other people do. We would like to follow social norms. Now again, following social norms could be purely rational. Right? So if there was a dress code, I would like to adhere to the dress code, otherwise I might be ostracized at the event and no one's going to be talking to me. But what's so surprising about this setting of organ donation is that is not an observable decision. Most people do not know if you're a donor, but it's the case that even in that situation, what you think everybody else does, by virtue of what the status quo is, has a large effect on our behavior. And so this is really powerful. Right? This means that as a policymaker, we have tremendous power to nudge decisions just by changing the default. Now, sometimes it could be used to, for negative reasons. For example, in terms of tipping, if we're changing the default tip to maybe 15, 20, or 25%, it could be that just because of inertia, we're going to choose 20%, even if the tip rate is 12.5%, because we can't be bothered to click on custom tip amount. So this is something that can be misused. But what I'm going to focus on today is how we can use this for positive reasons. And to do this, let me think about another really important decision. So while indeed organ donation is good for wider society, let's think about a decision which is good for the individual concerned. And this is saving for the future. Now, many people don't have an issue with saving. Right? So it's not that people are so impatient that they don't want to save. There are many things that people do in practice in order to save. So one is social security. But you might think, well, that's not a good example. You're forced to pay social security. That's not a choice. Well, the second one is a defined benefit pension. So there are many people who work for a company which has a pension scheme, which guarantees them an income in retirement. And in return for that, they get a slightly lower salary. Again, you might think, well, there's no control over that because that's just what the company offers. But you, as a person, could choose to work for a different company, which maybe has no pension scheme, and instead has a higher salary. 
This third example here is the one that we have most choice on, which is mortgage payments. Right, so we're quite happy taking out a mortgage which forces us to pay both interest and principal back over a certain period of time, even though that is money that we can't spend on a holiday. And that is something you could have choice over. Right, you could choose a mortgage with a longer term, so you're not paying it back as quickly, or you could even choose, in some case, an interest-only mortgage where you're only paying the interest back every month, not any of the principal. So there are cases where people aren't, don't mind this idea of automatic saving. But the challenge is what happens when saving is not automatic. So increasingly, pensions are no longer defined benefit where the company invests on your behalf but they are defined contribution where you choose how much to save every month for your retirement. Now, one of the challenges with saving is often when you start at a company, you don't have that large an income. Maybe you're an entry-level employee, and you can only save a little bit. Hopefully, when you become more senior, you get promoted and you get paid more, you will be able to save more out of your income, However, because of the status quo bias, because of the inertia, changing the default, changing how much you are willing to give out of your monthly paycheck is just something which is a chore. It shouldn't be, right? The cost of ticking a box or clicking on something for your family's future should be really small. But again, because people are irrational, they don't bother to do this. So this is behind one a really powerful intervention which was co-authored by um, Dick Thaler who won the Nobel Prize in economics a couple of years ago for his contributions to behavioral economics and also wrote the best-selling book Nudge on which a lot of this lecture is based. So what he introduced was this idea of save more tomorrow. That is a program where you commit today to investing a given portion of any future salary increase to your pension. For example, it might be if in the future I get a £10,000 pay rise, I'm going to be saving 10% of that. So why is that so powerful? Right? So the other option of waiting until you get the pay rise and then choosing to give more, right? that is still possible, but because people are inert, they're not going to be willing to do that. But right now, when people are given the program, are told you can sign up for the program right now, then they have the option to do that, and they typically will act. And so what uh, Dick and his uh, co-author Shlomo Bernardi found when they introduced this is that 78 people joined. Now, what is important is that even if you commit today to saving a proportion of your future salary increase, you can always backtrack. It could be that life circumstances change and you actually can't save your salary increase. Maybe you need that to buy a house or something. Again, what I'm stressing is throughout today's lecture, we're looking at ways that encourage better decisions without impinging upon citizens' individual freedom. But what they found was that 80% of them who were enrolled remained enrolled through their fourth pay rise. So they had every option to quit, but 80% of them saved. And as a consequence, what did this mean in terms of their savings? The savings rate rose from 3.5% to 13.6% over 40 months. So this was a substantial quadrupling of the savings rate, had a huge effect on people's financial future. And note that this idea can be applied to more than just savings. So you could indeed have a plan called Give More Tomorrow. So many people, myself included, give to charity as part of our monthly income. The amount that I give through the Charities Aid Foundation, that is a fixed pound amount. That does not change automatically with my salary increases. But it could be potentially that we could have plans where any salary increase, this will also lead to an increase in donations, and that might be a way of supporting charitable causes. Okay, so that was one example where you had this idea of save more tomorrow. A related example is to get people to participate in plans to begin with. 
So it used to be in many companies that you did not get automatic enrollment into a defined contribution savings plan. And so what one paper did 20 years ago was it took a company and it automatically enrolled some people into the plan and others were not automatically enrolled. And again, whether you're automatically enrolled or not should have no effect because you could always choose to opt out. But what they found was there was significant increase in participation and also that whatever the default contribution rate and the default fund allocation was, people ended up make choosing that option even though they could have chosen something different and even though few people chose that combination beforehand. Okay, so far, I've talked about this in terms of finances and, and saving, but we can think about important habits beyond saving, which can also benefit from this status quo bias. And so one of them is the use of um, the birth control pills, in particular the combined pill, which you only need to take for three weeks out of four. So the rational decision, if we were rational economic humans, would be to only give the pill for those three weeks, and so the person taking the pill would not take it for the fourth week, and that saves, obviously, the cost of the pill. However, the problem with that is that when the person taking the pill is out of the habit of doing so in her week off, then maybe when she should be taking the pill again, when the cycle starts again, she forgets to do it. So what is the solution here? It's to have the three weeks of the standard pill, but then the fourth week just give a placebo. So the person taking the pill is still in the habit of taking something every day. It's just an ineffective pill, so it's not having any impact. But this maintains the status quo of taking something each day and therefore will ensure that when the cycle starts again, then she still takes the pills. Now, um, a link to this is this idea of, um, is of, of how to overcome status quo bias. So what we've looked at so far are cases in which we can change the default, we can change the status quo from donation, no, not donating to donating, from not saving to saving, from not taking a pill to taking a pill. But there may be certain situations in which you cannot change the default option because doing so is illegal. And let me give you an example, and this is thanks to Dan Ariely, a really famous behavioral economist, economist who I'm sure you've seen his TED Talks or, or read his books. And what he looked at was the choice of drugs between branded, which are really expensive, and generic, which are cheap, even though they're both functionally the same. And so what they, this was, it was a situation where there were patients which were, had long-term illnesses, and they received branded medication every 90 days. And an online pharmacy asked people to switch to generic to change the status quo from branded to generic. But if you follow this lecture so far, right, that has no effect. If the status quo is branded, they don't want to switch. And even when you gave a financial incentive, which is to give the generics for free for a year, surprisingly fewer than 10% switched. Because the status quo was branded, people just didn't want to change from that. Now, you might think, well, isn't the easy option just to change the status quo? Say, I'm going to change your medicine to generic, and then if you wrote in, then we would change it back. But unfortunately, that's illegal because in the US, you're not allowed to change the medication that patients were getting. So instead, they did something quite different, which is they said, well, you need to return a letter to keep receiving the medication. And in that letter, you could choose to tick the branded or tick the generic. And so why that was very successful in getting people to choose the generic medicine. And so what was the power here is if they could not change the status quo to the desired option, the generic, because of legal reasons, well, just have no status quo at all, 
by you're having to fill in a piece of paper in order to keep getting the medicine, and that's something where there was no status quo, it was a fair choice between the two options. Now, one final thing before I change topic on overcoming the status quo bias is to reduce the number of options. So, so often, why do people choose to stick with the default? It's because they know what it is. In order to move away from that default, they might face a bewildering set of choices, and it's just easiest to stick with what we have rather than evaluating all of those choices. And so this paper here looked at cases in which you had a patient scheduled for a hip replacement. So that is a very costly operation. It's costly for the health service. It's costly for the patient in terms of recovery time and so forth. And so what they did, the experimenters, was they offered two different treatments to the physicians. One of them is, well, you forgot to try ibuprofen, and saying, well, do you pull the surgery and try the ibuprofen before proceeding? Another option was to tell the doctors, oh, you forgot to try both ibuprofen and piroxicam. Do you pull the surgery? Now, the second one might seem to be more powerful in terms of persuading the doctors in the experiment to stop the surgery because there's two other things they could choose. But notice this makes the decision more difficult for them because if they're going to pull the surgery, do they recommend ibuprofen? Do they recommend piroxicam? Do they recommend a combination of both? It's too difficult. And in fact, what the experimenters found was that the final option did not have much of an effect in encouraging people to pull the surgery. But the first one did because there was a simple alternative option, and that was to try ibuprofen. So again, what is the big takeaway here is if we want to get people to move away from the default, then just present one simple option, not a huge array of bewildering options. And this obviously has implications for things such as saving if you're bombarded with a ton of different investment options and there's no clear default, maybe you'll just choose not to enroll in a savings program. Now let me change tack away from status quo bias and let me get to a different topic of impatience. So let's consider various actions that people do. So these might be considered bad actions, such as smoking, or accumulating a ton of credit card debt, or it could be failing to take good actions, such as going to the gym, or saving for the future. Now, what causes people to take bad actions or not to take good actions? Now, the simple and glib answer here is that they are impatient, right? They, they prefer the present too much compared to the future. But note, if people prefer the present to the future, that could just be their preferences. That could just be the way that they are. It is not irrational to prefer something now rather than later, right? People would like, for example, to hear news earlier than later if it's, say, of a football result or an election result. It's natural to want things now. And I think this is really important because, again, if we go to the idea of nudging, we don't necessarily want to interfere with people's preferences and override their free will. We might think it's irrational to study, let's say, German literature rather than medicine, right? Because medicine is good for wider society and has huge income potential. I've got nothing against German literature. I studied it myself. But you might think, well, as a government, shouldn't we force everybody to study medicine instead? But that would be really unpalatable because certain people just do prefer German literature. Who are we as a government to interfere with that free will? So what is interesting about the next set of examples I'm going to give is that the government can actually nudge people towards making decisions that are actually in their best interest and consistent with what they themselves want, but they may not actually realize it. So here we're not changing people's preferences or getting people to do an option they don't want. We're actually getting people to take the option that they do want but because of a behavioural bias, they might not achieve this on their own accord. And so what is that behavioural bias? It is something called hyperbolic discounting. 
Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, so let me just explain what I mean by it. Let me just explain with the easy part first, what do I mean by discounting? This is the fact that we discount the future compared to the present. Well, I prefer to have a cookie on Monday than on Tuesday, and then Tuesday is better than Wednesday, Wednesday is better than Thursday, and Thursday is better than Friday. Again, it's only natural to want something sooner rather than later. It's not irrational, just like we'd like to hear the news earlier. But what hyperbolic discounting is, is we put massive weight on today. Right? A cookie on Monday is way, way, way better than a cookie on Tuesday. Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, yeah, Tuesday's a bit better, but not that much more. But Monday, anything which is today, we have a huge amount of weight on. And so why does that matter? Let me give an example. So let's say today is Monday. I know it's not, but it's just easy for a hypothetical. So if today was Monday, and I'm given the option of um, a cookie on Tuesday versus two cookies on Friday, I would probably prefer the two cookies on Friday. Yes, Tuesday is a bit better than Friday, but that is outweighed by the fact I'm going to get two on Friday versus one on Tuesday. But there's no, nothing particularly special on, about Tuesday. Yes, it's sooner, but only a little bit sooner than Friday. So if I'm sitting here on Monday, I would like to commit to give up one cookie on Tuesday to get two Tuesdays and Friday. Right now, on Monday, I'm willing to make that commitment. That is good for me. But let me now fast forward to Tuesday. When I come to Tuesday, would I want to give up the cookie today to get two cookies on Friday? The answer is no, because of hyperbolic discounting. Anything that involves a cost today, like we are going to be very reluctant to bear that cost. Because when Tuesday is today, this hyperbolic discounting sets in. So what this means is there's a particular weight put on any benefits given today. We're unlikely to give it up. And any costs that are borne today, we're unlikely to bear them. So what this means is this is an example of time inconsistent preferences. So today, I would be willing to give up Tuesday's cookie for two cookies on Friday. But when I get to Tuesday, I'm not going to follow through with this, which is why it's called time inconsistent. Okay, and so why does this mean that nudging is morally justified? It means that people are not doing what they themselves would like to do. Because then when it gets to the choice, when they have to actually make the decision, they're not going to give up the short-term gain. And so this is what a reason why this Save More Tomorrow program was so effective. Right, that was a decision to commit today to giving up part of your future income by saving it for your retirement. I would be unwilling to give up my current income for it because I put a lot of emphasis on consumption today, but if I'm giving up some hypothetical future pay rise, that is something which is much more palatable to me. And more generally than that, when we think about today having particular power and particular weight in our decisions, this means that anything that we can do to reduce the cost today of a decision or to increase the benefit today of a decision will have outsized effects. Now, those of you who came to my last year's lecture series on business skills for the 21st century, you might remember a talk I gave on mental and physical wellness where I introduced a um, framework which was um, launched by the Behavioural Insights team in the UK. The Behavioural Insights team was launched in order to use these nudges to get people to make better decisions. And they had an acronym, which was EAST. An intervention needs to be easy, attractive, social, and timely. We're going to forget about the last two, but we're going to focus on the first two, easy, and attractive, because that's linked to the idea of hyperbolic discounting, anything which is easy reduces the cost today of doing something and therefore will have an outsized effect on behavior. Anything that's attractive will increase the benefit today of taking the action and again have an outsized influence. 
So let's look at these two things in turn. I'm actually going to go out of order. I'm going to start with attractive. Let's start with the carrot first rather than the stick. So how do we make something more attractive today and therefore encourage us to take a decision which is going to benefit us in the future? So apologies for those of you who saw that last lecture on mental and physical wellness, but let me just repeat some of the examples in case you didn't see it. So one idea of encouraging people to, say, go to the gym was to give an immediate reward for doing so. And one example of that is temptation bundling, which is to bundle an immediately desirable um, action with going to the gym, which otherwise might be costly and painful. And the example given in the research was at listening to an audiobook. If you put the audiobook on the Hunger Games that it was in the research in your gym locker, then you can only listen to that audiobook when you go to the gym. And therefore, this would be a reason for forcing you or nudging you to going because you know that it's bundled with something positive. Or it could be that you give yourself an immediate tangible reward after going to the gym. It could be you're having a smoothie or a social coffee with some friends and so forth. But while going to the gym is important, there are even more important decisions in life. And one really important one is vaccination. And so here is a study um, co-authored by Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics for their contributions um, to this uh, topic and, and more generally the use of uh, experiments and nudges to, to encourage certain behaviours. So you might think, well, vaccination is a really important decision. Therefore, these small nudges should not have any effect when your child's life is at stake, you are going to get him or her vaccinated. But again, when we think about hyperbolic discounting, anything that changes the attractiveness today will have an outsized influence, even though to a rational economic human, it, it should not. And what they looked at was rather than having a vaccination centre, which you could go to any day of the week, they thought of having an inoculation camp. So an inoculation camp was open on a specific day when a lot of mothers would hopefully take their children to this camp. And so why did that work? Well, one reason was that it was a social activity. It made it more fun to do. You knew that other mothers would be going there and this would be something that you could do with, with some friends. Also, fast forwarding to the next slide, it reduces the cost because sometimes you might not know if there's a vaccination centre what days is it open or what hours is it open. Here, because the camp was open for one day, it had a big effect. It increased the inoculation rate from 6% to 17%. But we can do even better than that. Right, what they found was that if they gave a kilo of lentils to a mother for getting her child vaccinated, this further increased the vaccination rate from 6 to 17 to 38%. And again, this is crazy, right? Vaccination affects your child's mortality and there should be nothing to which should encourage you to do it. Everybody should get their child vaccinated anyway. But because the power of something which happens today, where's the benefit of vaccination you don't see until the future, right? this kilo of lentils had a huge effect. And this is what I find so empowering about behavioural economics. Well, you often think that the social problems that we face, such as child mortality, are really serious, and they indeed are. But the power of understanding people's biases makes us realise that seemingly small things can have an outsized impact on something like vaccination. So as the phrase, as the saying often goes, sweat the small stuff. Small things can make a big difference. Well, I, as a scientist, as an academic, I would love to say, look at the research of the effect of vaccination on child mortality. Look at the importance of saving on your future standard of living. But those can be quite academic arguments when you recognise that people hyperbolically discount. They really care about what they're getting today. And so small, immediate rewards can have a large impact. Okay, so those are examples of making something attractive, which is to increase the benefit today of doing something. Let's now look at something to make it easy, which is to decrease the cost 
today of an action. And so what these experimenters did was, again, with vaccination, but in the US, they tried to encourage students to get a tetanus shot. And so they gave a booklet encouraging them to do that. And that booklet explained the importance of a tetanus vaccination. Again, to a college student, hopefully educated, that should be enough to encourage vaccination. But not if there's hyperbolic discounting, right? The cost today of doing that when there's so many other things you can do as a student with your time is just not worth it. So they thought, well, let's try to play sort of... Um, uh, to apply the, the, the stick rather than the carrot, let's use fear. So they looked at using vivid photos and descriptions of how painful tetanus was, but they found that that actually had no effect of getting a shot. What did have a huge effect was including a map with the location of the university's health service, and that increased the vaccination rate from 3% to 28%. It went up nearly 10 times. Again, this is crazy, right? It should not be that finding out where the university health service is is a barrier to getting a vaccination. Most people knew it anyway because they'd lived on campus for a couple of years already. But this thing which has brought um, the, the horse to water had a huge effect on the uptake of the vaccination. Moving away from vaccination to back to financial decisions... Um, HM Revenue and Customs, Customs, they had a tax collection letter which was linked to the specific form they needed to fill in. Now, when they had that, compared to just a link to the website which contained the form, that increased the response rates by 19 to 23%. And again, this might seem surprising. You might think, actually, paying your taxes, that's really important, otherwise I might be fined, I might have to pay a penalty. And to find the actual form on this web page, that would only take a few seconds to do so. But again, this small act of making something a little bit more easy to reduce the cost today of finding the form had an outsized effect on general compliance. Okay, so that was my second topic, which is hyperbolic discounting, how actions today have a large impact on our decisions. Let me now change tack again for the third topic of my talk, which is the idea of loss aversion, which is when we want to offer people rewards or punishments, the evidence suggests that actually the stick might be more powerful than the carrot. So the work of Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for economics, and his late co-author Amos Tversky, found that sticks are more powerful than carrots because of loss aversion people do not like losing things that they already have. So the threat of losing what you already have can be even more powerful than the carrot of getting something new for making a good decision. Well, let me give you a couple of examples of this. So you might use loss aversion to deter bad behavior, such as conducting a driving um, error, so for a driving offense. So in the UK, what you have is you have a driving license, and then each time you commit an offence, you amass penalty points. But in Italy, you have a different approach, which is you start with 20 penalty points, and each time you have an offence, these are taken away from you. And so that might be more powerful, again, because of the loss aversion, to be given those points, and then to have them taken away, is even more painful psychologically than to be given some penalty points when you started with nothing. Similarly, this could be used to encourage good behavior. And so one good behavior could be conserving energy. So what the Behavioral Insights team looked at was two different messages to encourage people to save energy. One was, you'll save 200 pounds per year. The other was that if you don't conserve energy, you'll lose 200 pounds a year you're losing what you already have. And that second message was actually more powerful. Similarly, sometimes um, they were given the message, you're about to lose your introductory discount if, in order to encourage people to switch supplier. And that was really powerful, more so than you will save this if you switch supplier. The threat of losing a discount was more powerful. Now, again, it's useful for me to give a little bit of pause here. 
Because sometimes when people look at behavioral economics, they look at nudges which interfere with free will, they don't like it. And similarly, when I talk about loss aversion, how sticks might be more powerful than carrots, people might say, well, I'm advocating a really draconian approach to life. Right? Maybe as parents, we should punish our children rather than rewarding them. Maybe as teachers, we should use punishments. Let me make it very clear, this is absolutely not what I'm advocating. All I'm doing here is I'm changing the framing of things. None of the substance here has changed, but all I'm doing is choosing, changing the way in which it's perceived. Right? To be given some points and having them taken away versus accumulating penalty points from a zero starting location, that has a large effect. And similarly, viewing the money, the 200 pounds a year of savings, that being an active gain from saving energy versus something that you lose from not saving energy, that doesn't change the substance, it changes the presentation and yet has a large effect on people's actual behavior. Now, but there are certain things that you can do which actually change more than the framing, they change the substance. So some of you might have heard of stick, which is a commitment contract where you forfeit money if you don't fulfill a pledge. So it might be, I'm going to pledge to run a 10K race or run a marathon by the end of the year, and you commit some money to that, and you say, well, I'm going to lose that money if I don't fulfill this pledge. Maybe that money goes to the political party that I do not support. And again, you might think, well, that's irrational. Isn't it better for me to give myself a reward? To say, well, I'm actually, rather than giving £100 away to a party I don't like, maybe I'm going to use that £100 to buy myself a nice dinner. But again, because of loss aversion, actually it may well be that the stick is more powerful than the carrot. The threat of losing that £100 for some negative um, action and not getting a benefit is actually more powerful than the carrot of I'm going to get this nice dinner if I indeed follow through with the pledge that I've made. And when we go back one other time to the Save More Tomorrow program, right? so why was that so powerful? Another reason is that they're only increasing the savings rate after you have had a raise. Right? So this means that when you're saving and you're increasing your savings rate, you're not losing anything because it's only coming out of a pay increase and that avoids the pain which is caused from loss aversion. So why I'm mentioning loss aversion is not only can it in and of itself be a powerful motivator, it also means that when we decide and we design programs to encourage certain behaviours, we need to make sure that it doesn't lead to immediate losses. And that's why Save More Tomorrow involves saving out of future gains. Okay, the fourth of the five things I'm going to talk about today before questions is the power of salience and availability bias. So if you're a computer, you can access information anywhere on the hard drive. Doesn't matter which file it is in, you'll be able to access it. But humans are not computers. Not all information is created equal, and there might be some information which is more salient, more available than others. As we know, a picture tells a thousand words. Right? When the pandemic broke out, people were saying, do not panic buy, right? this you're going to always have enough food to buy, there's always going to be product availability. But some newspapers potentially um, incorrectly published and irresponsibly published photos like this. And this just led to people panic buying because it didn't matter how many people reported they were able to buy their food at a store, a photo like this had a huge effect. Now let's move from an empty store to a full store. What this means is that, well, where you put a certain item in a shop has a large effect on whether it's actually bought. So if you look at crisps, if they're put at eye level, right, that will have a large effect on them being bought than if it was right at the top or right at the bottom. And indeed, this was used in order to nudge people's eating habits, just changing the location of a food item. So in a school cafeteria, another paper by Dick Thaler um, found that placing certain foods at eye level without changing the menu 
alter the consumption by 25%. So in order to give people healthier options, right, it's not just important to make them available, but make them available in a particularly salient and observable way. What about when you're not seeing the food itself, but the menu? Well, just putting things at the top or the bottom of a menu uh, means that they are twice as likely to be eaten than the ones in the middle. Why? They're most salient. And then moving back to the idea of a financial decision, if you owe the court service a fine, you're threatened with a bailiff coming around and taking your property. Now, that threat should already be enough to get people to pay. But what they found was a text message sent 10 days prior, doubled the payments, and it was a personalised message with your name that tripled the payments. This, in fact, saved the court service £30 million a year. And again, right, that shouldn't be necessary. You should know that you should make the payment, otherwise the bailiff will come round. But this small reminder, making this available to you, that had a huge effect. Now, let's think of a, about a financial saving borrowing decision. Um, let me introduce perhaps the most controversial aspect of, um, of, of the financial system, which is a payday lender. So these are people who lend you money, charge you massive interest rates. Now, they're often seen as being completely evil. But another perspective is, unfortunately, there are segments of the population who do live paycheck to paycheck. And if they're not able to borrow before the next paycheck, they might not be able to feed their families. And because those people are less creditworthy, they do need to offer high interest rates in order to be able to have a sustainable business. But the question is, are these high interest rates deserved and sort of justified by the lower creditworthiness, or are these things which are just the consumers don't understand? And so what this intervention looked at was just making the true cost of a payday loan really salient. So what the experimenters looked at was on the envelope where you got your cash, if you were to show that the payday loan has an interest rate of 443% compared to a credit card of 16%, did this affect your borrowing? It did, it fell by 23%. And similarly, showing the cost of a payday lender versus the credit card, that also reduced the savings rate by 16, sorry, the borrowing rate by 16%. So simply providing information in a very salient way has a large effect on people's financial decisions. Final topic I'm going to give is to revisit this idea of conformity bias anchoring, which is we take decisions because other people take those same decisions. For some reason, there's this innate sort of social aspect of us as humans, which means that we need to copy others. And importantly, this applies even to hidden decisions. Let me reiterate, for a visible decision, like wearing a dress code at a party, it's not surprising that we want to follow the dress code. But for many decisions that are invisible, surprisingly, knowing what other people do affects us. And so the Behavioural Insights team, they wanted to study, right, how can we get people to pay their tax on time? And they looked at two different interventions. One is what's called an injunctive message, which tells you what people should do. For example, there might be a message saying, nine out of ten people in the UK think people should pay their tax on time. But what you should do isn't really powerful for a decision that is hidden. Even if you don't do what people think you should, well, if nobody can see that, then that's not going to have an effect on your behaviour. Instead, what they found was particularly powerful was a descriptive message. It just describes what other people do. So a message that the great majority of people in the UK pay their tax on time, that increased the um, percentage that did so by 1.4 percentage points compared to a baseline of 33.6%. Then, when it was the great majority of people in your local area pay their tax on time, that further increased it by 2.2%. So when the message is even more personal, when it's sort of people like you in your local area, that has an even greater effect. Most people with a debt like yours have paid it by now. That is 3%. And the most powerful is the great majority of people in your local area 
with a debt like yours, pay it on time. That suggests social pressure, and that led to people paying it more by an extra five percentage points. And so what this led to was £9.3 million of loan payments, or of tax payments, accelerated within 23 days, just by saying, other people take that action. So my final slide moves to, um, unfortunately, a, a quite difficult decision, but a, a very important one, which is on cancer diagnosis. So, so cancer, thanks to medical advances, if it is detected early, then it is much more treatable. So prompt diagnosis is key, but there's a wide variation in referral rates. And so what the Behavioural Insights team looked at was if you wrote to a doctor and you told them what the referral rate was for other GP practices in your area and that you were below average, this had a significant effect on your likelihood of referring patients for cancer diagnosis by 9.6%. And again, this is surprising. This is crazy. Right, doctors enter the profession because they're altruistic, because they care about patient survival. You might think, knowing what other doctors do, that should have no effect. Right, whether you refer your patient should depend on whether he or she has some particular conditions which make you suspect the likelihood of cancer. But in fact, this small nudge of saying what other people in your vicinity are doing, that had a significant effect on people referring their patients and therefore in ultimate survival. So that's all I have for today. Again, thank you very much for your attention, and I'd like to welcome Lucia forward for the questions. Um, first one I've got here is about um, repetition of public messages. Can the repetition of public messages be considered an effective nudge method to, for public behaviour? It, it can do, and, and this, again, is, is really surprising because... If you believe in rational economic humans, once you have information, right, you already had it and you don't need to repeat it. And there's some interesting behaviour in terms of like the stock market, is that sometimes if there is news and that news is a repetition of old news, it still has a huge effect on prices. So staying with the topic of cancer, but positively, right, there was a very famous paper which looked at the New York Times finding that um, a company had found a cure for cancer, led to the stock price soaring, not surprising because the cure for cancer is obviously really good, but surprisingly, the same um, newspaper had reported this several months previously, and so just repeating that message had a large effect. So um, a little bit, and often, is, is, is very powerful in terms of nudging behaviour. I've got another question here about vaccination, unsurprisingly. Yeah. Um, how effective is nudging when used to improve the take-up of vaccination programmes for individuals who are initially not inclined to take up vaccination when offered? Say, for example, um, texting individuals saying that we've reserved a vaccination for you at rather than encouraging them to opt in. Yeah. Yeah, I think all of these nudges, so anything that you can do which reduces the cost is really powerful. So if it is, we're making this appointment for you, then if that just reduces the effort of having to schedule it yourself, again, you might think this is irrational because vaccination should have a huge effect on your life, but you're just making this decision a bit more early. It's a bit more easy. Another thing which might be useful is to say, well, 95% of people in your age group or maybe of your ethnicity or so on, has been vaccinated. And that's really powerful because people might think, well, maybe if I'm young, I don't need to get vaccinated. Or maybe if I'm of a particular ethnic origin, maybe the vaccination is a bit more dangerous for me because it's not been tested on people of my background. So just knowing that other people have done that, that can lead to some positive behaviour. So I've got to hear somebody talking about an example of changing the framing mm. Um, of uh, changing the defaults through changing the framing. So, for example, apparently the University of Southampton changed yes. the pricing in their coffee shops. The coffee price remained the same. With your own cup, it's £2. With a takeaway cup, it's £2.25. Mm. So, uh, increasing that number, that, that cost for bringing a takeaway, uh, for without bringing your own cup, um, apparently has massively increased the number of people bringing their own cups. And the, the question is, is this the sort of thing that governments should mandate? I think so. And, and actually, this is what they've done effectively with, with plastic bags. And I think the plastic bag tax has been really powerful, right? So you might think, OK, does 5p really make a difference? But there has been time when like, I've gone home and got my extra plastic bag. And you think the cost of my time, even if it's 
five minutes to go up the five flights of stairs, that's not worth 5p. But what this shows is that really small things can have a large effect. So small nudges like a 5p plastic bag tax, something like a sugar tax, they have large behaviours. And the University of Southampton, I didn't know that they did it, but that's really positive. Certainly Pret-a-Manger also um, has that in terms of bringing a reusable mark. Also, just like the birth control pill exercise, so what that had was the idea that even if you are on your off week, you should still take something. What Predamonji has done is that while you cannot actually re you give your own mug because of COVID, they have to give the um, cups to you, even right now, and you bring your own mug, you're still getting, I think it's the 20p discount. So then you stay in the habit of bringing your own mug, and so then when we go back to normal, and they're allowed to take customers' mugs, then they will be in the habit of doing that. So I think that was something really positive that they did for wider society. I've got a question here about using biases for marketing purposes. Could you use these, uh, these biases to sell a product, for example? Yeah, you, you can, and, and this is why people like Instagram influencers are really powerful, and you can get an Instagram influencer, and you have the algorithm to make sure that they are similar to you in terms of demographic or age and, and, and so on. So these can be used for, for, for negative, well, potentially negative reasons also, is that if you frame something in a particular way, if, say, a lot of people like you are doing that, then indeed I think this is how some people... Unfortunately, again, it's habits like smoking. People say, well, everybody else in your age group is doing it, uh, and those can work in negative ways. But what I'd like to highlight is that they can also be used for good as well. Um, someone's asking here about your um, uh, tax payment um, point, and they're saying if the basement, baseline number for on-time tax payments was 33.6%, was the great majority message a lie? If so, what's the implication? Oh, so this might be um, the great majority in your area, or it might be within 23 days. So I have to go back to the, to, to, to the actual, um, the, the actual um, messaging of it. But it might be that they don't pay on time, but they, they were told that you're, you're paying within 23 days of the actual um, of, of the window. But the Behavioural Insights team, when they do this, right, they, they do have to conform to ethical standards. So whenever you do anything which involves human experimentation, there are these ethics bodies, certainly at a university, that you need to go through in order to make sure that you're not misleading people. I've got another question here about... Um, uh, uh, other reasons that, other things that affect decision making. Um, the questioner asks you, or says, you did not mention how often religious convictions affect decision making at a personal political level, for example, with organ donation, mm. etc., mm. and that uh, political leaders must take into account the alienation of very large blocks of voters when considering these issues and priorities, do you, do you agree? Yeah, so certainly uh, people's religious convictions will, will drive their behaviour. Uh, why I did stay away from that, and you're, you're right to point out that I, I did, was I don't think, I think that's something difficult to change. So if, if somebody has a particular religion, I don't think it's for the government to tell you that your beliefs are wrong. So what I've tried to do here is to try to see, well, what can the government do to encourage certain behaviours without impinging upon people's free will? So these are things that just change the default, and without impinging upon people's beliefs, because I, I think those are the things that the government should rightly stay away from. Um, what do you think about the recent announcement that your medical records will be shared unless you opt out? Is that a good example of using nudge psychology or a sort of misuse of it? Yeah, so I think this, um, I might have to do a little bit more research as to what, what is this in, involves before replying more sort of uh, with more greater conviction. But on the fly, if this is indeed something which is still an opt out, gives you an opt out, I don't think this has too much, there's too much wrong with that. So presumably they want it to be shared with other medical authorities so that if you need to be given a certain treatment, they, they have um, the, the information to do that. If there is an easy opt-out and there's a very clear public campaign that this is happening so that people don't sort of accidentally opt in without knowing that this is changing, then that's something which, which, which I think is positive. I think the concern is that when the default is changed and people don't know about this, so I understand with Facebook and some other social media platforms, they suddenly change the default for visibility and so on without telling people, and then I don't think that is fair, because even if they were to claim, oh yeah, you had the opt-out, if people didn't know that the default had changed, then they weren't able to take action. 
Um, I've got a final question here, um, which I don't think you touched on, so I'm not sure whether you're wanting to cover sure. this, but how important is the language in which things are framed? Mm. Two recent examples that have struck me using global heating mm. instead of global warming because it sounds less attractive, and also trying to encourage urban areas to plant tiny forests because it sounds more cuddly than a simple wood. Mm. I think language is, is, is very important, and, and this is another sort of behavioural aspect, is how you frame something makes some um, large effects. So I don't know so much those specific examples, but within organisations which I do study, like calling your employees colleagues or partners rather than employees, that has a huge effect because that makes you feel like a partner in the organisation. An employee is something that is, is somebody to whom something is done. You are employed rather than a partner in the organisation. So I think using the language is, is really important. Um, uh, final question to you. This is your third year as a Gresham professor. Are you coming back next year? Oh, thanks for asking. So normally Gresham professors are, are um, appointed for a three-year term, but I'm really grateful to Gresham College for giving me the uh, opportunity to extend it for a fourth year, and I'm really excited to say I am staying for a fourth and final year. So that lecture series is going to be called The Principles of Finance. So this is to provide basic financial skills, such as how to save, how to borrow, how to invest, how to decide whether or not to take an investment, how to start a business, how to finance a business, and make that accessible to a general audience. So at the moment, in order to learn something like that, you need to go to business school, which might cost $100,000 over a two-year period and take up a lot of time. And not everybody has this money or this time, and these are decisions which affect people's long-term financial future. So in the spirit of Gresham College's mission to make um, education accessible, I'm really delighted to have this uh, lecture series on the basics, the essentials, the principles of finance. So I look forward to seeing some of you at that next year. Hopefully that will be in, in person. But I think this is my time to sign off for, for this lecture series. Just want to say a huge thank you to everybody for the support of this lecture and all these lecture series, and not just for me, but also my colleagues at Gresham. I know that watching a, a lecture online isn't the same as watching it in person, so thank you to all to your loyalty in this period, and hopefully we'll get to see you soon uh, in person uh, next academic year. Thank you so much, Professor Edmonds. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed the lecture, and we'll be sending you a link to the video and transcription in a couple of days' time.